Lord, help us today as we allow your word to take root in us. Lord, may we um, be encouraged, may we be convicted, may we be humble, may we be teachable. And Lord, would you allow me simply to be the mouthpiece, Lord, for your truth, that your people can be built up in the faith, that those who are unbelievers can hear the gospel and they can believe and uh, enter into a new relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we just, we just desire to honor you now by the preaching of your word and by those sitting under the preaching of your word. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. You know, we're living in an age today where deathbed experiences um, are not as commonplace um, because the end of life uh, technology and medicine um, has, has grown in its understanding and uh, the desire to help people pass away gracefully um, is more available to us today. Um, and as a result, sometimes we, we don't have the privilege of hearing last words from those that we love. That was certainly true um, with my mom's home going. She had Alzheimer's, and so even, even if she had some words, it wouldn't be anything that we would really understand. Um, and uh, that, there's a sad part to that. And yet we realized that we really lost our, my mom um, when she was really into the Alzheimer's, certainly at a point in time. Um, but uh, my father, his mind was crisp to the end. Uh, and in fact, um, it was his decision to say, this is it. He, he was taken into the hospital. He en- ended up having, having uh, myeloma, which is cancer of the, um, the bone marrow. That affects you in a number of different ways. In particular, it affects your, your tongue, and I'm not exactly sure of the connections there. Um, but he got to the point where um, his cancer basically was taking the better of him at that last stage. And he was able to be in the hospital. He was in ICU, and the only reason he was being kept alive was because he was taking a medication. And um, if he stopped the medication, the doctor said, you're going to die, but you can't take the medication. You, your life can only be prolonged for so long. And so um, what he did is he arranged um, for our family, my family in particular. We were in, here in California at the time, and uh, my brother and my sister um, were there. But um, he made sure that he called us, and he talked to all of my kids individually, said a word to them, talked to Elliot, talked to me, um, and, of course, to my brother and sister who were there. And... Um, they removed the medicine from him. About an hour later, he was with the Lord. Um, quite a, I mean, really, it was, if, if, there, if there's a way to say goodbye, that was one of the ways to say goodbye. I look back on that and just say, I'm thankful that my dad had the opportunity not only to speak to me, but my kids too. So there's something about last words that are pretty significant. And um, I think we pay attention to them. Now, the reality is these are not David's actual last words. You're saying, well, is the word of God lying then? The answer is no. Uh, his last words are in Second uh, Kings 2, where he speaks to Solomon about taking care of you know, all these different guys. But these are David's last, I would say, official words as king. This is, this is an official statement. This is, this is a, um, an, an, an office that, that is speaking. And so that's what we have here. Um, and you know, the, the last words, as I've mentioned, of, of people are, are, are meaningful, and, and many times they have great importance. Someone has said, dying saints preach 
powerful sermons. And I think when we open our Bibles, we find that to be true. Um, think of Jacob speaking to Joseph. And I mean, here's what he says to Joseph. Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's in their burying place. And if you remember, the children of Israel always wanted to do what? They always wanted to make sure that not only Jacob, but, but even Joseph's bones were returned back to the promised land. And uh, so there, there was, there's emphasis there put out and, 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 and held onto for generations. And then in Moses' last words, at the end of his life, he says, this is Deuteronomy 33, 29, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. A statement of promise, and, um, wonder at being God's children. And of course, we, we remember the Apostle Paul's last words, 2 Timothy, and just a heartfelt, passionate letter that we've worked through as a church let me remind you of what he says to Timothy. This is right after he says, preach the word to him and charges him. He says in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And of course, we can't forget the final words of Jesus when he was on the cross. Really, the two statements are, it is finished, and then also, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And those words have had lasting, ringing effect on the world by virtue of the fact that he gave up his life as that sacrifice once for all. Now, as we think through where we are in our text today, yes, we have the, the last official words of David, but, but these are connected to a greater story within the context of the Old Testament. And particularly, we have a visitor here today. Wow. Um, in particular, <laughs> pay attention up here, all right? I'm not going to do any song or dance or anything like that, but um, every once in a while, um, now he's coming back. This is great. All right. Maybe we got a guard up there. All right, well, you'll understand the importance of that, that bird here in just a little bit. Um, the context here is actually, if you remember, well, let's just go back a little bit in our thinking um, because there's something that happens at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and that's Hannah and her song. But even the context of her song, if you remember, flows out of the end of the book of Judges. And the end of the book of Judges, this is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So no king. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. But then also, remember, there was a glimmer of hope at the end of the, the next book, and that would be the book of Ruth, because it ends with Ruth 4, 22, and it says this, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And we understand, if we, if we have a grasp of, of the flow of Scripture, that, that there's something significant about that statement. There's something hopeful about that statement in the context of 
There's no king in Israel. And the story of 1 Samuel going into 2 Samuel, of course, is this, 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 this reality that God breaks into the general darkness and he begins his work through a godly but barren woman by the name of Hannah. And God answers her prayers and gives her a son whom she calls Samuel. In 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, we have Hannah's song and it's a passionate description of what God would do in raising up his king and establishing his kingdom, that, that this, this song points to both David and then the future or the greater king that is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to the last verse of her song, 2 Samuel 2 and verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them, He will thunder in heaven, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn or the power of his anointed. So you have this incredible song at the beginning, and now we come to the end, and we, we listened last time to David's reflective song, looking back over his life. Now what we're doing is David is giving another song, but this is a song that isn't looking back so much. It does a little bit, but the purpose of it is to look forward. The purpose is to think about not him as king, but there is another king who's coming. And so what we have here is you see it not only in the title but also in the statements here. This is an oracle of David. This is a word of prophecy. It's an official word from God. It's an official word from God about the future. And it's an official word from God about the future of his king. And so this morning, God is calling us to listen to the words of this oracle or this prophecy and consider both the promises and the warnings that these words reveal. So David will, will have already looked back, but he will look back a little bit in here, but this, this is pushing forward. David sees himself not as the fulfillment or the ultimate fulfillment of what God said he was going to do, but he sees himself as part of the fulfillment with view to the greater one who will come. So now first consider the source of the oracle. It might seem that these words here at the beginning are simply there just to kind of set everything up. And they are, but David is purposefully setting things up for a reason. Let's just walk through these a little bit. Notice verses 1 through 3 again. Now these are the last words of David. Oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The, Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And so what David is giving us here is an understanding of the twofold origin of these words, of this oracle. First of all, notice the words of David. The words of David. This oracle is a, has a human author, and his name is David. And he's described here using four expressions. He is the son of Jesse. In other words, he is of the, the lineage of the family of Jesse, which takes us back again to the book of Ruth. We connect him in the storyline of what's going on. But also, he's from that royal tribe of Judah, a descendant of Boaz. Secondly, he is raised on high. 
That is, he was raised from relative obscurity to his kingly position. Remember, he was just a, he was just a guy who was tending sheep, protecting those sheep from the, the wild beasts that were around. And, and not too soon after that, we find him standing before a Goliath, and he becomes a champion of Israel. And that was all by divine design. That was all according to God's greater purpose. And so he moved from, from simple responsibilities to greater responsibilities of overseeing the nation of Israel. He's also anointed of the God of Jacob. That is that God chose David to be a man after his own heart. It was God who was after David. And he called him to serve as the shepherd of Israel. Not only that, he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, it's just a great title. I mean, we know David is, is the writer of, of, of the lion's share of the Psalms. And he's recognized to be the, the one who had these gifts and imagination, the ability to, to think about life and to explain his experiences in poetic ways so that his legacy wasn't just remembered through historical records like this, his legacy is also remembered through his psalms. And we love the psalms. We love, in particular, David's songs. Now, David is saying all of this because he's giving his credentials as one who has much to say at the end of his life as king over Israel. But he also wants to be sure that the reader uh, or, or those listening like ourselves don't miss the true origin of these words. Certainly, David's recognizing himself as the human author, but he is also saying that behind his lips is the divine author that is speaking. And so now we move from the words of David to the words of a divine author, and that is the words of God. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So David uses three descriptions here of his God. It's really interesting what he says. First of all, he says the spirit of the Lord. Now, I have heard people say that the Holy Spirit is really a New Testament expression of God. I've heard Christians say that. Well, in the Old Testament, you know, it was just God the Father, and the New Testament, it's all about the Holy Spirit. And, and, and to some degree, the experience or the way that things happen certainly flows that way. But don't think that the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Testament because he was not. In fact, he was very, very present in David's life. Now, some speak of it in these terms, as if it was the, the Father that came first, then Jesus Christ came, and then the Holy Spirit. That is a heresy called modalism. And I would just caution you, there are movies out right now, there are books that you can read in Christian circles that do damage and harm to the character of God, in particular to his trinity. Just because there's a movie out with a Christian name, or put out in, in Christian bookstores and stuff does not mean that the theology in it is healthy and good. So be careful of the shack if you happen to have that on your shelf. All right? There's, there's heresy throughout that thing, and it's being presented as healthy and good, but it's a distortion of the Godhead as well as many other things. Now, 
In texts like this, though, we do find that this triune God is, is active in the Old Testament. Here it says that the Holy Spirit of the Lord, or the Spirit of the Lord, speaks by me. His word is in my tongue. David, in reflecting over his sin with Bathsheba, his, his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, says this. He appeals to God and he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now hear this. David, David understood the role of the Holy Spirit and was no stranger to the Spirit's influence in his life. And we ought to become more and more aware of the role of the Holy Spirit. And by that, I do not mean a distorted view of the Holy Spirit, but an accurate view of the Holy Spirit. And we might want to step back and say, I think sometimes because there are certain people under the umbrella of Christianity who have kind of jettisoned off and created this new theology of the Holy Spirit, that there's been a tendency to shy away from understanding who, who he really is and how he really functions. And we need to make sure that we have a good, clear understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit. Certainly we see him here in the life of one of God's children, actively at work and speaking now through the lips of David. Not only is he referring here to the Holy Spirit, but he also talks about the God of Israel, which is really an echo of what he said earlier in the title, the God of Jacob. Jacob, Israel. Remember name change? The idea here is this, that, that Israel is the object of God's attention. Why is it that God interacts with the nation of Israel in the history of the world? Is there anything about Israel that is appealing to God? Did God look down at the nations and say, oh, I think I'll choose, oh, Israel. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. But God, in his wisdom, in his love, in his sovereign choice worked through a certain people that he was raising up that were part of his plan. And that's why we say Israel is God's chosen people. Or you say Israel are, right? There's something unique about them. We said that isn't fair. You argue with God. <laughs> but the same is true, friends, about his children today. Why is it that, that, that God breathes out his gospel on a people and some repent and, and humble themselves before God and others don't? Certainly they are responsible for their actions, but there's also a teaching in Scripture that says that God is the one who is drawing people to himself. Well, that isn't fair. Well, I think it's perfectly fair because no one is going to be taken into heaven kicking and screaming and ultimately, no one's going to be going into hell who doesn't deserve to be there and ultimately doesn't want to be there because he's in rebellion against the God who has come and breathed out his gospel. So we've got to be mindful here that, that God is committed to Israel and he's committed to you if you're one of his children. And then, of course, he's the rock of Israel. And the idea of the rock here is, is the same God who protected and delivered David. And it's the same rock, you might want to say, that even Paul identifies as the one who was guiding the people of Israel where? In the wilderness. Now, I don't want to push this too far, but we have the Holy Spirit. We have, you might want to say, by allusion here, Christ, and even the Father in this whole prophecy here. Now, what's the point of all this? 
The point of all this is David wants to make sure that we understand that although David's lips are moving, they are, the words are the reflection of his heart. They are also the words of God speaking through him. David knows that he's speaking, but he also knows that it is God who's speaking through him. And this is, uh, this is the, the, the true, true reality throughout the Psalms. David wrote um, those Psalms out of his experience, but God was behind David, breathing out those thoughts through David and through his experiences. So David is, is establishing right at the beginning the source of this oracle. It is God who is speaking. Yes, I'm the king, and I'm rightfully there, and it's all because of God that I'm the king, but it is God who is now working through my lips. He's the one who has spoken these things to me. But now we get to the heart of this, this oracle, the promise of the oracle. It portrays a universal and ideal ruler. Now, what will he be like? How will he rule? What effect will his rule have on his subjects? Let's just read this section beginning at the, the middle here of verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Let's think through then this, these incredible, beautiful words and promises that flow out of this oracle, out of this prophecy. First of all, notice it talks here about a king who rules. A king who rules. Now, how does this future king rule? What is the character and nature of this king's rule and reign? Well, we're told there, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now, there's something about translation that sometimes you lose the punch of what is actually being said here. Um, and John Woodhouse offers a little bit more literal translation to, to help us understand the punch. He says, you could translate it this way, a ruler over mankind, a righteous one. A ruler in the fear of God. And his, his point here is to say this, that what we have here is both an announcement and a promise. This is the kind of ruler that we have. He's a ruler who rules justly. He's a ruler who rules in the fear of God. So let's just unpack these a little bit um, together here. And there's one, I think, other thing that we need to, to notice, first of all, but he is a ruler, first of all, over men, over mankind, you might say. This is a universal rule over all mankind, over all humanity. It is a reminder of what David said in his prayer to God after God covenanted with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise of his word, God's covenant with David, was instruction for mankind. In other words, mankind can go back to David's 
um, or God's covenant with David, and they can, be, they can benefit from what God was saying to David. This is what's going to happen, and it's going to happen, and it's going to impact mankind. And so this ruler now is, is, is not simply David, but it's a ruler who is greater than David, but he is going to be over all of mankind. Now, you have to understand in the context of what's going on, God raised up David to reestablish Israel. If you remember, the borders were spread out wide, and his reputation was known in the area. We, we saw that based on what David was saying in the previous song. But that's just a foreshadowing, of, a, a local foreshadowing of what is going to happen globally with this greater than David ruler who's going to come. So he rules over men. He rules justly. He will be a righteous ruler. Now, this world, as you know, has many rulers, but rarely have these rulers been righteous. Typically, rulers rule only with their own family, their own ethnicity, or their own political agenda in mind. That is the way it was all over year for years. If you remember, uh, as a result of the kind of rule that happened in Europe, um, we had revolutions that took place. We had the rise of communism, and why is that? It's because you had kings, you had czars, you had uh, kaisers who were living in such a way that they were so high above the people that not only were they so high above the people, the people lived on their lands, and those people had to pay tribute to them. And they were kept at a distance. They were kept, so to speak, in bondage by those rulers. Now, certainly in the mix of all that, you had the occasion ruler that was actually kind and gracious and generous to the people, but the standard tone of that was, we're the rulers, you're the servants, and you do what we say, and if you don't, then you will be responsible for it. And, of course, that affected people and, and was the, the result then of, of all the kind of rebellion that took place during that time. Now, things haven't changed much, have they? You look around... The, the, the scope of today, you have certainly countries that are ruled democratically, but you also have countries out there that are ruled by great families. Well, who is the president now? Well, it's the son of the former president, right? There's a regime that is controlled by a family. In some of those cases, there, there, is, there is kind of a, a graciousness to the people, but in many of those cases, there's the, hey, listen, if you get on the wrong side of the family, you're in trouble. They control and they manipulate. Many times the military and the police are at their disposal. Not just the, the government, but at the family's disposal. Oh, you may have a government that's there, but the family can trump the government to do what they want them to do. And that's always a very tenuous place to be if you're living in that kind of a context. Even we who are privileged to live in a free country like the United States still long for senators and congressmen and governors and mayors and presidents who will rule justly, who will rule with righteousness. But sadly, even here, many in politics are not so concerned with justice, but about money and power and their own political agendas. They might go in with good intentions, but oftentimes they get into the mix of things and they get corrupted. I moved to California from the state of Michigan. And what was interesting was um, it wasn't too long after I left that um, there were in jail two former mayors of Detroit at the same time. And that was just kind of like, I mean, it was kind of like the attitude and the joke. It's like, you know, who's running for mayor for Detroit? Well, it's like, and how soon are they going to be in jail? 
And it's no surprise then that the economy in Michigan started to tank. That had some other things on it too. But if you have a mayor who's not really concerned about his city, he's not concerned about upkeeping and, and taking care of the people, but is concerned about getting the money to himself, you're going to have trouble. And it's not a surprise then that when things got bad, people just started to leave Detroit. I mean, I got some, I got some houses you can buy in Detroit if you want. They're real cheap. I mean, people were literally wondering who was going to turn the light out because people were just leaving Detroit. But see, part of it was just, there's just huge corruption there. Who wants to live in the context of that kind of corruption? Who wants to live under that kind of unjust ruler? Now, I say all that to say this. The ruler that we're talking about here is a just, righteous ruler. He does what is right by those he rules, those under his rule recognize his loyalty to them and they reciprocate that loyalty in willful service. That's the kind of ruler that's being talked about here. That's the kind of king that is being proclaimed here. But not only that, he is a ruler who rules in the fear of God. His rule will be in full accord with God's law. What he says will reflect God's standards. What he, how he acts will reflect God's character. Just an incredible picture of this king, this future king who would rule. But notice also, we have a, here a king, not only that will rule, but a king who will don. Verse 4, he dons on them. This, this just, this king who, who is... Uh, who, functioning by the, the fear of God, he will don. There's a kind of a well-known story about a, a young preacher who got up one day to announce his text, and he said, Behold, I come. And he was so nervous about the opportunity of speaking that he forgot what he was supposed to say next. And so in that panic, he said again, Behold, I come and still try to search for what was next and, and what he was supposed to say following that statement. He, he still drew a blank, and so he, he kind of realized his problem, and he, he kind of you know, used that time and, and thought about his emphasis, and he said with much more strength and vigor while he started to hit the pulpit, Behold, I come! And as he did that, the pulpit gave way, and he fell into the lap of a lady sitting on the front pew. And then he saw, he apologized the whole time. He said, no, 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 don't worry about it. It's my fault. You told me three times you were coming. <laughs> okay, now, there's a point here. All right? The point here is this, that God is going to come now, and he's going to tell us through the lips of David that he has a king, a ruler who is just, who wants to act in the fear of God, who is going to don, who is going to come. And he says it repeatedly. He wants us to know that he is coming. Notice what it says. He, he dawns on them like a, the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Dawning, we're told, will come. Again, when the ruler comes, he will be like the brilliant morning sun, that ushers in the day. So there's a darkness. 
But when this king comes, when this ruler comes, he'll be like the sunrise that welcomes a new day. Not only that, he will be like the sun's warmth that that shines on a cold and cloudless day. You know that it's typically colder when there are no clouds? The clouds kind of are a canopy that keep the the warmth in. And having lived in Michigan and and, and the bitter cold, if it's really, really sunny out, you know it's going to be colder. All right, so the the picture here is of of the sun that, that just warms you on that cloudless day. But he will also be like the rain that soaks up the parched land and and causes the grass to grow. So we want to summarize it this way. He brings light to Israel. He brings light to us out of that darkness. Secondly, he brings warmth to Israel. He brings warmth to us. And he brings life to Israel. And he brings life to us. He brings fertility, abundant and lush growth from the earth. You see, you need all three of those things in order for healthy growth of plants to occur. And these three physical images point to the blessing and the refreshment that this ruler brings to his subjects. We are the grass, so to speak, that benefit from this benevolent ruler. See, he's different. He's not like the rulers of the earth. He's a ruler who, who's just. He's a ruler who, who, who acts in the fear of the Lord. Now, a question. Where can you find such a ruler? Is it even possible that a ruler like this actually exists? The Bible doesn't simply contain ideas about life. It gives us examples and testimony to its truthfulness. And this is one of the the realities, for example, of the resurrection. We're going to celebrate Easter in a few weeks here. And one of the beautiful things about the resurrection is the Bible doesn't just talk about the resurrection. It actually gives you eyewitness accounts to say, this is true. He was dead. Now he's alive. And in the same way, David here is applying this principle. The answer to the question, where can you find such a ruler, David now presents his own case as a form of witness. This ruler that will dawn, future, has already done. He's already come. Notice what he says now in verse 5. He's come by virtue of the covenant that he made with David. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause to, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So this covenant, first of all, is a standing covenant. David's saying, "Look, look at my life. God covenanted with me in the midst of turmoil that He was going to raise up a house, and that my house would stand." And that there would be one that would be an offspring of that house who would rule. So David knew, even in the past, that he was not the ultimate fulfillment, but he was the means of that fulfillment. Even when Saul was chasing him in the wilderness and he was hiding out in caves, worried in a sense about his life, he knew 
that God would continue to, to hold his promise to David. When David stood against giants or when, when his sons were in rebellion, there certainly was genuine fear and struggle. But at the same time, there was this understanding that God was preserving the house of David. Why is this? Why is it that every time David is up against a wall, God comes through for him? And you might even say, even David's sin with Bathsheba and all that was involved there, God still comes through for David. How? He comes through for David through Nathan, through repentance, through restoration. And God continues to maintain his promise and his commitment to David, his chesed love. His covenant love. But notice also it's an everlasting covenant. Now, what do we mean here? What's he saying here? It, it, he's saying, look at what God has done already. It is everlasting, but get this, it is ordered and secure. In other words, David understood that his covenant was not the only covenant. That there were other covenants that took place before his, and those covenants looked ahead through David. He realized that there was an order, there was a plan to God. God is not panicked up in the sky in heaven somewhere wondering what he's going to do. David understands that the covenant that, he, that God made with him is ordered. It's all part of God's solid, consistent plan. And that would be the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant, and even the new covenant that we experience by virtue of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. It's ordered, and secondly, it is secure. It means it will happen. This is not some kind of pie in the sky, I hope. Let's promise together, I hope this takes place. No, this is God saying, this will take place. This is what's going to happen. So David is looking back, solidifying, reinforcing what he's saying by his own experience through the covenant that God made with him. It is a future covenant. Look at what God will do to me and to my descendants. He's going to work through his promise to David. That's the idea for will, not, uh, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. This is not some prosperity gospel where he's like, oh, I'm going to claim this first myself. God's going to prosper me. This, David is reflecting on the fact that anything good that happens to him is only because of the covenant that God made with him. And God will continue to follow through when David is gone in maintaining that covenant for his people. So David is using this to reinforce what he's saying here about this ruler who's going to come, who's going to dawn. Now, friends, the ruler that's being presented here is an attractive ruler. He rules justly. He rules in the fear of God. He rules in accordance with his promises. And as, as the results of his rule, there's life, there's warmth, there's light to all who bow down in submission to him. The ruler does not crush, or this ruler does not crush or milk his subjects, but he rather refreshes and nurtures them. It's a huge difference here. Now, what kind of ruler do you want? What kind of ruler do you want to nestle yourself under? One who milks you, one who crushes you, or one who nurtures you and refreshes you. Hear this. The kingdom is attractive because the king is attractive. Jesus himself is 
a grandly attractive king, and his kingdom, therefore, will also be attractive. Doesn't this, this prophecy draw you to want to be included in this kingdom where this righteous king rules? Now, this kingdom is attractive because this king is attractive, but the king is attractive because we have seen so little of this kind of ruler. Now, maybe for us living in the United States, we're like, oh, you know, our rules, you know, we've been pretty comfortable and all that kind of stuff. And I just want to take you to all sorts of places around this world where they're saying, is there such a king? I hope Yuli doesn't mind me sharing this. But when we were in Ukraine, we were just having fun as, as Americans and people doing ministry. We wasn't carrying on too much, but we were on a bus, and this lady turns around to Yulia and says something to the effect of, well, you know, um, you know you're lucky because you have something to smile about. You know, gets off. And... There are people around this world, friends, who are living just in context and in situations where, where life for them is just a grind. It's horrible. We might be nudged a little bit because we have stuff. We've been blessed in many ways that maybe we don't recognize a real huge blessing, but they are. But friends, we, we deep down long for a king who is just, who, who, who rules in the fear of the Lord, who will, who will exercise that, that rule in such a way that when he dawns, he will bring refreshment and blessing to his people. So this king is a breath of fresh air. He's a, a light in the darkness. He's, he's rain on parched land. He's hope in the struggle. He's the savior in times of trouble. Look throughout history and see if you can find such a ruler in such a kingdom. A ruler controlled by the fear of God. A ruler who cares truly about his subjects and a people whose lives are enriched, healthy, and alive. Now, see, that was the tone of David's rule. You know, we might look at David's rule through the lens of his sinfulness, but his sinfulness was part of the struggle he had as king, but he was a good ruler. His, his general tone was he, he was a faithful ruler. In fact, his kingly rule was what Israel had been longing for in an earthly king. And when the future kings of Israel are mentioned in the book of First and Second Kings, it is David's rule as king that is the standard of rightness in the eyes of the Lord. So even God's people look back to David and his rule, saying, this is how it should be. Now, we're not used to this kind of ruler. What we are used to, as we've mentioned are rulers elected or imposed who are immoral, corrupt, oppressive, and seeking to gain power where they can. They oppress rather than refresh their subjects. As I was working through this text this week, I happened to catch on TV, um, it was at some symposium, and there's this teenage girl from North Korea who was speaking. And she was telling about how her mom and she escaped North Korea by walking through the desert into Mongolia, not knowing whether when she got to Mongolia, 
that somehow either they were going to ransom her because if you are from North Korea and you're caught, you can actually get paid money to return those people because in North Korea, you just don't do that. And she was talking about the fact that, that, that there was this kind of, this culture where you had to bow down and if you want to say worship your ruler. I mean, he, he, Kim Jong-un is, is called the supreme leader. It's his title. And if you even have a, have a hint of distrust that is communicated to someone else, you can be arrested along with your family, potentially put in jail, potentially even killed. Now, this was her testimony. It's what she was saying. And she said the people that were living in that context had no idea what was going on, around, going on the rest of the world. They thought that this was just life like it was around the world. You lived in a country, you had a ruler like this, and you, you bowed down as a servant to the ruler. That's just the way it was. See, friends, bondage is real, and it's been real throughout history. But the good news is that there is a ruler who has donned, and this ruler has come, and this ruler, friends, is Jesus. I want to I drive this home a little bit more, because we know that to be true. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? But let us wrestle with the reality and the beauty and the impact of that. And let's go to a few passages of Scripture. We'll begin by, by noticing in, in the book of Isaiah, 11, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And notice the similarities to David's oracle as I go through these passages. Isaiah, chapter 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be what? In the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with the equity of the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, and he, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. I mean, Isaiah's just picking up on, on what David has said, and he's, he's, he's moving it ahead. God is speaking through Isaiah, giving a greater picture now of, of what this ruler is going to be like. You see what kind of ruler that Jesus is from these words. A wise ruler who delights in the fear of the Lord and rules with righteousness. Wouldn't you love to live under that kind of kingdom, under that kind of king? Then Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what's being said there. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So this, this same ruler, Christ, is anointed by the Lord to bring good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the captive, to the bound. In other words, light has dawned. 
Warmth has come. Life is now being lived. Sadly, we don't often see the attraction of Jesus as our ruler because we're hindered. See, we're hindered by our own selfish ideas that compete with Jesus. What we want to do, how we want to live. And we, we are hindered by our own misplaced hopes that compete with Jesus. We have all these, these goals. We have these things that we have to do. Friends, Jesus is saying, listen, I am the ruler that you want. I mean, even as someone who is a child of God can still fight against the ruler. And Jesus is saying to us this morning, I am the, I'm the ruler that you want. I'm the, the savior that can bring understanding and help and nurture and health to your life, your spiritual life. Sadly, it is not until these ideas and these loves and these hopes are dashed into pieces that we begin to see how attractive this king really is. Because the real, the real kingdom battle rages in our hearts. We want to be king of our own lives and live in our own self-created kingdoms where we rule, where we decide what's right, and we battle with God. It's not something we verbalize necessarily, but this is what's going on in our heart. We don't want to do things God's way. We don't want to listen to what God has to say. We have our own agendas, our own rules, our own standards. We want what we want, how we want it, and when we want it. And to that end, the Lord must make us drink despair before we will thirst for his rule in our lives. Let me ask this, friends. Do you see yourself, apart from Christ, as poor, broken, captive, blind, naked? See, that, that's, that's what this is pushing us to. Do we see how, how majestic and how amazing and how attractive this ruler is. If he were not there, this is where we would be. But not only that, the third passage here, Jesus claims all these things for himself, doesn't he? Luke 4, 16 through 21, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes into the synagogue to read on the Sabbath day. And let's pick it up at verse 16. And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Hmm, interesting. Little providence going on here. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound familiar to you? And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
Now see, David was speaking from his perspective. The ruler will done, he will come. The ruler then has done, he he has done in my life, and yet is a future-looking aspect to it. But now, as we consider this good news, we can also say the ruler, Jesus Christ, has come. And we can also say that this ruler, Jesus Christ, will come. He has come, and he will come. He has come. This ruler came on a typical night in the obscure town of Bethlehem. He came as a newborn baby, Emmanuel, God with us. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He was put on display during his ministry. He came ultimately to die on a cross and be raised on the third day, but also to usher in his kingdom as king who rules mankind with righteousness and in the fear of God. And so his kingdom has already been established But it is only a spiritual kingdom in nature. The physical reality has not yet taken place. And so he has come and he rules and reigns in our hearts as the church, but yet he is coming to establish his physical kingdom on the earth. And we stand in between those two aspects of his coming. It's called the already and the not yet is how we describe it. He has come, but he is coming. His coming is not a possibility, it's a promise. It is not wishful thinking, it is a certainty. He ascended into heaven, but he longs to return to collect his bride, the church. In the words of Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan pastor from the 1600s, who was also a counselor to Oliver Cromwell, we have these words. Love descends better than it ascends. And so does the love of Christ, who indeed is love itself, and therefore comes down to us himself. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But when I come, (laughs) he's going. But he's coming. That's John 14, 3. When I come, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, that is love coming down. That is, that is Christ, this ruler, coming down and welcoming us. And then for the writer of Hebrews, he reminds us, Hebrews 10, 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come. (laughs) Interesting expression, right? The coming one will come and will not delay. Now, some might come to you and say, oh, wait a second, you know, where's the promise of his coming? In contemporary terms, you talk about this coming of Jesus, well, when's that going to happen? He must have forgotten about it because he hasn't come back yet. It's been over 2,000 years What does Scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that he is not delaying in his coming. The framework of time is a creation of God. It means nothing to him. He is going to come when he chooses to come, when it is right to come. He's not waiting for things to simply happen on the earth. He has it ordered and secure. What he is choosing to do will happen at the right time. There is no delay whatsoever. And when Jesus says, it's time to blow the trumpet, he will come. 
He knows what he's doing. And if that is true, his subjects long and look for his coming. And we are to be faithful to do the will of God while we wait for his appearing. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're to comfort and to encourage one another with the promise of his coming. So that's what we are to do. So we've looked at the the source of these words. We've looked now also at the promise of this oracle. But but there's something else here that's so important for us. And it's the, the response to the oracle. It says, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the, the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they're utterly consumed with fire. Now, the image being used here is the image of, a, a, of the king as a gardener, so to speak. He brings light and life, it would be rain, and the grass can grow, but he also weeds out the weeds and the thorns and cast them into the fire. In other words, there's heaven to be gained and there's hell to be shunned. Heaven is a real place where Jesus and his followers go and hell, friends, is just as real. It is not a place where you will hang out with your buddies. It's not a place where Satan walks around ruling with his pitchfork. He is a creation of God who will be cast into hell. No, Satan will be himself suffering in hell. No, it's a place of torment, of eternal punishment for those who rebel against God. So, one can, first of all, embrace the promise, and that's what David ultimately does as he becomes this righteous man who's described there in 2 Samuel 22. This this grass upon whom this this light and this warmth and this rain has come, can benefit from that light, this warmth and this rain, and grow. Or, secondly, you can reject the promise and be like a thorn. These are all pictures. Pictures to help us understand what's going on. A thorn is, friends, useless, and it's also dangerous. I mean, you don't usually go into the backyard and say, I'm going to go collect some thorns. Would you like some thorns? Hey, guys, I brought, you some, I brought you some lemons, and I brought you some thorns. Take whatever you want. No, unless you happen to be involved in crafts and stuff like that, or have a kind of a weird side to you, you're probably just going to take the lemons. Because thorns are just there as a nuisance. They're dangerous, and that's the image that we have here. Thorns are hunted down by a man in full armor who's using a spear to gather them up together. That's the point here, and it shows us that thorns are dangerous even to the grass, and they're dangerous to the kingdom. Not that they're going to run over the kingdom and stop what God's doing. God has it all ordered and secured, but they simply need to be weeded out, and what happens to those thorns? They're thrown away to be utterly consumed with fire. So we have to respond to this oracle. And to find yourself in this text, 
you have to be a little bit of an environmentalist. You're grass. And by that, I don't mean the common vernacular. You are grass that can benefit from God's sun, his warmth, and his rain. If you respond by humbling yourself to this ruler who rules justly, who rules mankind, who rules in the fear of the Lord. Jesus is the one who rules righteously and in the fear of the Lord, who brings the light of new, new creation into his coming, who causes the land to flourish like a garden, and who takes up armor and spear against the thorns. It is Jesus who brings life to those who believe. It is Jesus who judges those who rebel. Don't let anyone ever try and convince you that in the New Testament, Jesus is all kind and wonderful, and he is kind and wonderful, but that's just one side to him. Because he is a just ruler, he will also exercise justice. Now, friends, there's some wind-down, reflecting, concluding thoughts I want to bring to you. Number one, the word of God is real. (laughs) So listen to it, obey it, live it. David understood that when he was speaking, it was really the Holy Spirit that was speaking through him. David's words help us understand how God recorded his word and sheds light on what the apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. Here's what he says. For no prophecy, we have an oracle here, this is prophecy, in other words, no statement here, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along, born along, as God breathed out along by the Holy Spirit. That's the New Testament reflection of what's going on here. You have in your hands the very word of God. This is breathed out by God through individuals who recorded psalms, history books, gospels, letters, and even they, as they were writing it, many of them recognized that God was speaking through them. They recognized that their words not only were authoritative because of their position, but also authoritative because God was speaking through them to his people and ultimately to mankind. The word of God is real, friends. Listen to it. Love it. Soak it up. Because we sang about that this morning. Thy word is a a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You need the word of God. Secondly, we don't say this enough, but the, the coming of the Lord is real. It is real. Uh, you might doubt. The, the, the darkness might be like, like the, 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 the fog coming in over, over San Francisco. You might feel that way, but the Lord is coming at his time and the right place. It's a well-known story about a bride in England who happened to be on a, a roundabout. You know what a roundabout is? Like a, we call them traffic circles here, but in England they have big ones. And she was in the middle of this roundabout. It had grass on it and stuff like that. And, and she was dressed in her bridal gown. And she was standing there and she was looking up into the sky. And some people were a little concerned. I mean, when's the last time you saw a person not only standing in the middle of a roundabout, but looking up into the sky and someone 
out of kindness, went to find out what was going on and said, what are you, what are you doing? She's like, he's coming. And they're thinking, oh, okay, this is some, ooh, you know, some Christian weirdo here. And he's like, no, no, he's coming. And they're like, okay, lady, we need to get you out of here. There's traffic all over the place, and you're causing a scene, and we don't want accidents to come. She's like, no, 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 he's coming. And they're like, lady, we need to go. And then as he looked up into the sky, here comes her groom in a parachute. <laughs> he's going to land in the middle of this thing. Now, friends, see, we, we, we know by virtue what the Word of God reveals that he is coming, and we believe it to be true. Those around us might say things to discourage because they don't have a comprehension. They, they're not reading the word of God with understanding. And they might laugh at us. They might say, you're, you're really dumb to stand in the middle of a traffic circle and say, look, he's coming. Your, your life is like that to them. They say, oh, no, 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 he's coming. I know he's coming, and I'm waiting for his coming. So we began with Hannah's hope. She knew, she longed for this hope for Israel. And we end here in 2 Samuel with Christ, our only hope. This is what he's pointing to. So the word of God is real, the coming of the Lord is real. Finally, the consequences of rebellion are real. Again, we don't, we don't necessarily talk about hell and things like that enough. We let Scripture speak, and if we, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, you'll probably hear about it more. That's going to be our next book, by the way. Um, grand announcement there. Um, but hear this. Choosing to ignore the king will only have devastating results. It will only have heartache and destruction a just and righteous God must act justly, and those who are in rebellion to him, he must deal with justly. So those who rebel against him must be punished, and their justice must be exercised. My friends, I just, just want to press that home. Hell is not something we mess around with. It's something we avoid at all costs. He's coming. Are you ready? He's coming. And he is our only hope. Lord, help us today. To listen to, to David's oracle, to listen to you speak through David, to give us assurances that the king of the kingdom that you have established is none other than Jesus himself and his rule and his kingdom is not only well-ordered because he is just and he is exercising his rule in the fear of the Lord, but Lord, it is a rule that seeks to refresh and strengthen and grow and nourish those who are his willing, joyful, loyal subjects. Oh Lord, we, we long for the reality of your physical coming and yet at the same time, Lord, we realize that in the spiritual realm we have the same realities. We can trust you because you are a righteous, pure ruler and we know 
that in humbling ourselves before you, that you are at work giving us life and warmth and light for every day. It is our joy, as imperfect as we are, Lord, to humble ourselves before you and to worship you and to serve you as our great king. You deserve nothing less from us. And now, Lord, we praise you for your goodness and kindness to us. In your name, amen.